Section 14, Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexandra Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corey Matlack from Baltimore, Maryland. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexandra Dumas. Section 14, La Constantine, 1660. Chapter 1. Before beginning our story, we must warn the reader that it will not be worth his while to make researches among contemporary or other records as to the personage whose name it bears. For in truth, neither Marie Laroe, widow of Jacques Constantine, nor her accomplice, Claude Paragod, was of sufficient importance to find a place on any list of great criminals, although it was certain that they were guilty of the crimes with which they were charged. It may seem strange that what follows is more a history of the retribution which overtook the criminals than a circumstantial description of the deeds for which they were punished. But the crimes were so revolting, and so unsuitable for discussion, that it was impossible for us to engage into any details on the subject. So that what we offer in these pages is, we confess quite openly, not a full, true, and particular account of a certain series of events leading up to a certain result. It is not even a picture wherein that result is depicted with artistic completeness. It is only an imperfect narrative, imperfectly rounded off. We feel sure, however, that the healthy-minded reader will be grateful for our reticence and total disregard of proportion, in spite of the disadvantage which such a theme imposes on any writer with a deep sense of responsibility, we have resolved to let in some light on these obscure figures. For we can only imagine no more effective way of throwing into high relief the low morals and deep corruption into which all classes of society had sunk at the termination of the factious dissensions of the Fronde, which formed such a fitting prelude to the license of the reign of the Grand Roi. After this explanation, we shall without further preamble introduce the reader into a little tavern in Paris, situated in the Rue Saint-André-des-Ardes, on an evening in November 1658. It was about seven o'clock. Three gentlemen were seated at one of the tables in a low, smoky room. They had already emptied several bottles, and one of them seemed to have just suggested some madcap scheme to the others, the thought of which sent them into shouts of laughter. Pardieu, said one of them, who was the first to recover his breath. I must say it would be an excellent trick. Splendid, said another. And if you like, Commander de Jaws, we can try it this very evening. All right, my worthy king's treasurer, provided my pretty nephew here won't be too much shocked. And as he spoke, Dejars gave to the youngest of the three a caressing touch on the cheek with the back of his hand. That reminds me, Dejars, said the treasurer. That word you have just said piques my curiosity. For some months now, this little fellow here, Chevalier de Moranges, follows you about everywhere like your shadow. You never told us you had a nephew. Where the devil did you get him? The commander touched the chevalier's knee under the table, and he, as if to avoid speaking, slowly filled and emptied his glass. "'Look here,' said the treasurer. "'Do you want to hear a few plain words, such as I shall rap out when God takes me to the task about the peccadilloes of my past life? I don't believe a word about the relationship. A nephew must be the son of either a brother or sister.' Now your only sister is an abscess, and your late brother's marriage was childless. There is only one way of proving the relationship, 
and that is to confess that when your brother was young and wild, he and love met. Or else, Madame Lab says, Take care, Treasurer Giannin. No slander against my sister. Well then, explain. You can't fool me. May I be hanged if I leave this place before I've dragged the secret out of you. Either we are friends or we are not. What you tell no one else, you ought to tell me. What? Would you make use of my purse and sword on occasion, yet have secrets from me? It's too bad. Speak, or our friendship is at an end. I give you fair warning that I shall find out everything and publish it abroad to court and city. When I strike a tale, there is no turning me aside. It would be the best for you to whisper your secret voluntarily into my ear, where it will be as safe as in the grave. How foul curiosity you are, my good friend, said Jars, leaning one elbow on the table and twirling the points of his mustache with his hand. But if I were to wrap my secret round the point of a dagger, would you not be too much afraid of pricking your fingers to pull it off? Not I, said the king's treasurer, beginning to twirl his mustache also. The doctors have always told me that I am of too full a complexion, and that it would do me all the good in the world to be bled now and then. But what would be an advantage to me would be dangerous to you. It's easy to see from your jaundice fizz that for you, bloodletting is no cure. And you would really go to that length? You would risk a duel if I refused to let you get to the bottom of my mystery? Yes, on my honor. Well, how's it to be? My dear boy, said Dajar to the youth, we are caught and may as well yield gracefully. You don't know this big fellow as well as I do. He's obstinacy itself. You can make the most obstinate donkey go on by pulling its tail hard enough. But when Jianin gets an ocean into his plate, not all the legions of hell can get it out of him again. Besides that, he's a skillful fencer, so there's nothing for it but to trust him. Just as you like, said the young man. You know all my circumstances and how important it is that my secret should be kept. Oh, among Jianin's many vices, there are a few virtues. And of these, discretion is the greatest so that his curiosity is harmless. A quarter of an hour hence, he will let himself be killed, rather than reveal what just now he is ready to risk his skin to find out, whether we will it or no. Jeannin nodded approvingly, refilling the glasses, and raising his to his lips, said in a tone of triumph, I am listening, Commander. Well, if it must be, it must. First of all, learn that my nephew is not my nephew at all. Go on. That... His name is not Moranges. And the next? I'm not going to reveal his real name to you. Why not? Because I don't know it myself, and no more does the Chevalier. What nonsense! No nonsense at all, but the sober truth. A few months ago, the Chevalier came to Paris, bringing me a letter of introduction from a German whom I used to know years ago. This letter requested to me to look after the bear and help him in his investigations. As you said just now, love and someone once met somewhere, and that was about all was known as to his origin. Naturally, the young man wants to cut a figure in the world, and would like to discover the author of his existence, that he may have someone at hand to pay the debts he is going to incur. We have brought together every scrap of information we could collect as to this person. 
hoping to find therein a clue that we could follow up, to be quite open with you, and convince you at the same time how extremely prudent and discreet we must be. I must tell you that we think we have found one, and it leads to no less a dignitary than the prince of the church. But if he should get wind of our researches too soon, everything would be at an end. Don't you see? So keep your tongue between your teeth. Never fear, said Jeannin. Now that's what I call speaking out as a friend should. I wish you luck, my gavelant Chevalier de Morangis. And until you unearth your father, if you want a little money, my purse is at your service. On my word, de Jars, and you must have been born with a call. There never was your equal for wonderful adventures. This one promises well spicy intrigues, scandalous revelations, and you'll be in the thick of it all. You're a lucky fellow. It's only a few months since you had had the most splendid piece of good fortune sent you straight from heaven. A fair lady falls in love with you and makes you carry her off from the convent of La Roquette. But why do you never let anyone catch a glimpse of her? Are you jealous? Or is it that she is no such beauty after all, but old and wrinkled like that knave of a Mazarin? I know what I'm about, answered Dejar, smiling. I have my very good reasons. The elopement caused a great deal of indignation, and it's not easy to get fanatics to listen to common sense. No, I'm not in the least jealous. She is madly in love with me. Ask my nephew. Does he know her? We have no secrets from each other. The confidence between us is without a flaw. The fair one, believe me, is good to look on and is worth all the ogling, fan-flirting baggages put together that one sees at court or on the balconies of the Palais Roy. Ah, I'll answer for that, isn't she, Morangis? I'm quite of your opinion, said the youth, exchanging with Dejar's a singularly significant look. And you had better treat her well, uncle, or I shall play you some trick. Aha! cried Giannin. You poor fellow, I very much fear that you are warming a little serpent in your bosom. Have an eye for this dandy with the beardless chin. But joking apart, my boy, are you really on good terms with the fair lady? Certainly I am. And you are not uneasy, Commander. Not the least little bit. He is quite right. I answer for her as for myself, you know. As long as he loves her, she will love him. As long as he is faithful, she will be faithful. Do you imagine a woman who insists on her lover, carrying her off so easily, turn away from the man of her choice? I know her well. I have had long talks with her. She and I alone. She is feather-brained, given to pleasure, entirely without prejudices, and those stupid scruples which spoil the lives of other women, but a good sort on the whole, devoted to my uncle with no deception about her but at the same time extremely jealous, and has no notion of letting herself be sacrificed to a rival. If ever she finds herself deceived, goodbye to prudence and reserve, and then... A look and touch of the commander's knee cut this panegyric short, to which the treasurer was listening with open-eyed astonishment. What enthusiasm! he exclaimed. Well, and then... Why then went on the young man with a laugh. If my uncle behaves badly, I, his nephew, will try to make up for his wrongdoing. He can't blame me then, but until then he may be quite uneasy, as he well knows. 
Ah, yes, and in proof of that, I'm going to take Moranjas with me tonight. He is young and inexperienced, and it'll be a good lesson for him to see how a gallant whose armorous intrigues did not begin yesterday sets about getting even with a coquette. He can turn it to account later on. Oh, my word, says Jeannin. My notion is that he is in no great need of a teacher. However, that's your business, not mine. Let us return to what we were talking about just now. Are we agreed? And shall we amuse ourselves by paying out the lady in her own coin? If you like. Which of us is to begin? Dejar struck the table with the handle of his dagger. More wine, gentlemen, said the drawer, running up. No dice, and be quick about it. Three casts each other, and the highest wins, said Jeannin. You begin. I throw for myself and nephew. The dice rolled on the table. Ace and three. It's my turn now. Six and five. Pass it over. Five and two. We're equal. Four and two. Now let me. Ace and blank. Double six. You have won. And I'm off at once, said Jeannin, rising and muffling himself in his mantle. It's half past seven. We shall see each other again at eight. So I won't say goodbye. Good luck to you. Leaving the tavern and turning into the Rue Pave, he took the direction of the river. End of section 14